1: History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy
0: Zachary. So it has been said of the fashion designer featured in today's episode that their striking, gravity-defying designs of the 1950s, quote, transformed women into elegant geometric equations.
1: Quote, to achieve these designs required what might be described as feats of engineering, employing tools and techniques that could effectively push, pull, and support. And this designer created their, quote, own cathedrals of fashion. Puffs buttressed with crinoline and bodices made rigid with metal or bone. Padding and interlining were the scaffolding of these pieces. Seams and darts like artful trussing, these were positioned in the most unusual places. coin size weights are hand-stitched into hemlines to anchor an unbroken line of fabric.
0: And then moving into the 1960s, they write, quote, that this designer developed contours that were closer to the body. The severe points were reinterpreted into more fluid crepes and jerseys, while featherweight chiffons captured women in whirlwind-like helixes. End quote. And the designer quote journeyed through a lexicon of shapes and fabrics constantly renewed with each decade with designs that frequently incorporated the idea of movement, the flash of an opera cape as it was spread open to conceal and frame at the same time, trains that left a twin trail of contrasting colored fabric. Sharp angles that skimmed a woman's curves and poised her for flight, bubbles that seemed ready to float away into a heady atmosphere if not moored by the earthly wearer. End quote.
1: Yes. And dress listeners, if you're attempting to take a guess at the as to the identity of the subject of today's episode, you might be surprised to learn that these architectural masterpieces of design were not the work of, uh, you know, some of fashion's greats like Charles James or Bontz but rather by their Filipina counterpart, Salvacion, Lim Higgins, professionally known as Slim. And she really made this indelible mark on the bustling post-World War II fashion scene in the Philippines. And she became one of the country's most influential fashion designers with this incredibly prolific career spanning four decades.
0: Yes, she was truly a visionary fashion designer and skilled architect of design whose work and career really rivals that of the great French haute couturiers that we are all so familiar with. She has inspired generations of Filipino fashion designers through her groundbreaking school, Slim's Fashion and Art School. It's now run by her son and today's guest, Mark Lewis Higgins. And you actually might remember, dress listeners, remember that name from our season one episode with Gino Gonzalez. Gino came on to talk about his book, Fashionable Filipinas, which was co-authored with Mark. And I'm so excited to welcome Mark and have him join us here today um, to discuss another book he co-authored with his sister Sandra on their mother's life and legacy. And that book is called Slim, Salvacion Lim Higgins, Philippine Oak Couture, 1947 to 1990, which actually accompanied an exhibition by the same name in 2010.
1: Yes, and we are so pleased to welcome Mark to the show today, all the way from Manila. Mark, welcome to Dressed. Mark, welcome to Dressed. It is such a pleasure to have you joining
0: us all the way from Manila.
2: Thank you for asking me to join.
0: Yeah. And of course, we're here today to discuss your mother, Salvacion Lim Higgins' extraordinary life and legacy. I'm I'm so excited to have you here today. And and it's actually something you yourself have been instrumental in preserving, not only with this wonderful retrospective of her work, but also as the co-director of her groundbreaking fashion school, which we are going to discuss a little bit later on in this conversation. But first, I would just love if you would start by introducing us to your mother's early life and formative years, perhaps even starting with the very event that earned her her name.
2: Well, curiously enough, my mother was not born in Manila. She she wasn't born in the big city. She was born in one of the provinces in Legazpi, famous for where General Douglas MacArthur landed or returned so she was born in in the province to a very conservative pure chinese father and a very conservative good catholic victorian catholic mother so how she turned out the way she did is anybody's guess <laughs> and it was the era because my grandfather was chinese it was the the era of big families so there were many siblings seven of them altogether but there were there were two or three other babies that died at, at childbirth or soon after. And apparently my mother was one of them because her her name when she was born or the, her, the name given to her was Remedios. Uh, but then apparently she told me as a baby she got sick and she, she claimed she died. And so they were preparing this baby for burial and cleaning the baby. And a Chinese relative appears knocking on the door with some mysterious medicine and administers it to the baby. And she started to turn red and started crying. So my grandmother, being the good Catholic, named her Salvation.
0: Wow, that's such a wonderful story.
2: Yes, yeah.
0: And so I would love if you could just tell us a little bit about some of the early influences on her interest in art and design and how this would eventually translate into her pursuit of a university education.
2: Well, uh, the family was... Quite artistic, you know, my grandfather being Chinese, you know, was a Sunday painter and he did Chinese calligraphy. And my grandmother, again, being the very Victorian grandmother, did a lot of sewing. You know, she came from an uh, an age where women didn't go to school. They stayed at home, they either prayed the rosary or did embroidery. So she had trunks and trunks of, you know, she knew how to do crochet and all that stuff. So I guess my mother grew up around this. Also, the women were not pressured to to be educated or to go to college, whereas the men were. And again, in a typical Chinese family, you have the eldest son uh, does a certain role in life. The youngest son is the scholar. The women were not really expected to achieve much. I don't mean that in a derogatory way, because my grandfather wasn't like that. But So I think the fact that she wanted to come study fine art was neither a surprise nor a hindrance to them, if you will. But as you saw from your research, she didn't start college until her early 20s, came to Manila, and then uh, her studies were interrupted by the outbreak of war. But her fine art teacher, who she used to talk to me about, of course, being a child didn't mean anything to me, but she said his name was Carlos Francisco, And she talked about him a lot and said he was a painter and he had an an incredible sense of proportion and he was always encouraging her sense of color. Carlos Francisco is now one of the national artists of the Philippines.
0: Oh, wow. Um,
2: Yeah. So she has that claim to fame as well. And then, you know, the war happened and they went back to the province, as I said, in her early 20s. And you, you mentioned what that experience was like for her. Um, and I remember all she told me. I was talking about this with a friend recently that my family, I think, was lucky enough to not have seen a lot of the horrors of the war because, you know, we've seen a lot of documentaries and read a lot, uh, a lot of things about people who saw atrocities. And God knows there was terrible violence here. But fortunately for my mom and her family, it wasn't so bad what happened is my grandfather was the head of the anglo chinese chamber of commerce back in their province and uh, the japanese were after him because they wanted to open up i forget the term in in war language of when you when you open up a city and try to act like everything's normal even though you're occupying it so they wanted him for that which he refused to do so they spent 2 years uh, hiding in plantations in the mountains, and it was an incredible production because, can you imagine a family of seven children and God knows who, what other relatives came along with them, tracking from plantation to plantation with the family furniture and sort, you know, sort of housekeepers and people carting this stuff along wherever they went. And I remember a, a typical story of my. My grandfather was my grandmother went ahead with the children and she told my grandfather, make sure you take staples to last us, you know, X number of weeks. And he shows up with photographs and crates of anchovies and stuff like that. This was the type of man he was. (laughs) And then my grandmother was clairvoyant. And every time she got restless, my mom said she would start closing windows wherever they were. And she would say, we have to leave. They would leave, and sure enough, the next day or the day after the Japanese ended up there.
0: Oh, man. That must have been so scary. And for our listeners who don't know, and you, you did mention it, the Japanese occupied the Philippines during World War II. And, um, and, and something I just want to go back a little bit, because I love about this book, is that you have all these wonderful family photographs that show your mother and her sisters. And your mother had this wonderful sense of style as a young woman. Um, I think she was born in 1920, right? So she was in her teens in the 30s and the early 40s. And she's dressed, I I think the biographer writes that she dressed in her brother's clothing, so she was quite a tomboy.
2: Yes, actually, part of that war story was, I was saying that they weren't, mercifully, they weren't so affected by the war in the sense they didn't see any violence what she said was to her it was like a big party like she and her favorite brother at the time so they'd be hiding in these plantations in the middle of a rice field so she would sneak off with her brother in his clothes so a rolled up shirt and trousers and they would look for the nearest town and find out if there were any fiestas happening there and then they would join the dancing
0: oh wonderful
2: This is what she told me. She said, this is what she remembered of the war, luckily. So it's kind of her life is a cross between a John Irving novel and a Gabriel Garcia Marquez one.
0: (laughs) It sounds like it. All that magical realism. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's such wonderful descriptions in the book about how your mother's lifelong obsession with fabrics began when she would kind of. She was given free reign of her grandmother's trunks. She was incredibly educated, spoke multiple languages. She was really inspired by art. And as you said, she went to study art and design at the university. And then her professor really, as you also mentioned, recognized her eye for color and her painterly perspective. And this would all translate into fashion design after World War II. You
2: can really see it in her clothes.
0: Yeah. And we're going to talk about that. And after the war, she emerges as this fashion designer. Obviously, that's not something that just happens overnight. But it's not lost on me that your mother's meteoric ascent to fashion design stardom, which I think you can describe this as in the 1940s, parallels that of another fashion luminary, Christiane Dior, All of our listeners will be familiar with the year 1947 as the year that Dior launched his new look silhouette and ushered in, you know, the golden age of haute couture that would come to define... The fashion of the 50s and 60s. But this is also an especially pivotal year in the life of a 27-year-old Salvacion who opened her first shop in 1947 and effectively launching the Philippines' own golden age of fashion design. And I would love for you to tell us more about the post-World War II fashion landscape in the Philippines and then your mother and your aunt's roles in transforming it with. Really, this wildly successful business. This is the period when Sebastian Lim becomes slim. And I would love if you could tell us more.
2: Well, I actually gave a talk about what you just said. It, I called it uh, A Tale of Two Cities, the Golden Age of Okutu on the Opposite Sides of the World. Oh, wow. Because literally the Philippines had just recovered from the war. This was 1945. So you can imagine by 1947, when she came to town and and lo- opened her shop, it was a combination of two things. It was the explosion of Christian Dior's new look on the fashion scene. And it was also this incredible uh, sense of being liberated by the Americans, I might add. And there was this huge surge of nationalism and national pride so that... The, the the national dress even which i know you're going to discuss later really took on its most uh, sophisticated and avant-garde version of itself in this period because it was a celebration of a country bec- uh, finally becoming truly independent and 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 you know the same parallel in france it had just uh finished world war II and the same exuberance so so dior's new look was all about a return to the romanticism and extravagance of bygone eras and immense amounts of fabrics and you know extravagant silhouettes. And also culturally, the Philippines, which we can also talk about later, is very much a culture that has always been exposed to, to foreign influences and has no problem adapting, you know, whatever is the latest thing that, that catches their eye. This happened even long before the Spanish period as I, Gino and I wrote in our book on the terno, the name Slim was really not so planned either. She was still in college at the time and through some friends knew uh, the publisher of the Sunday Magazine. And they asked her for, because they saw her fashion designs and they asked her if they could publish some of her designs in the Sunday Magazine. So she was trying to hide from her professor that she was doing this on the site. So she very quietly just signed it as Lim, but people read it as slim.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: So it's almost an accident that that's how, how her label came to be. And I guess by the time people were writing to the Sunday Magazine, as they did in those days, in those genteel days, and said, these dresses are beautiful, where can we find them? It's perhaps one of the reasons she and her sister opened the, their shop.
0: And what was kind of your mother's foray into fashion design? Was it something she'd just always been interested in and kind of dabbled in while she was at university?
2: I think she dabbled in it. And I think what happened is her older sister who who started the business with her had been in Manila earlier, pre-war, and was studying in a dressmaking school. And I remember it was called Madame Kollerman's Dressmaking School. You know, the Philippines also had a lot of Europeans that had fled here and, and set up business and this whoever this Madame Kollerman was did the same. And so my aunt already knew how to, she was the technician in the beginning. She knew how to cut the dresses and my grandmother also made dresses. So they started it back in the province and I guess my mom just, you know, through osmosis. So I guess when it came time to open the shop, it was really this older sister that was the one That was the technician in the beginning. And my mom kind of learned later on or as she went along
0: And there's this wonderful snippet from the San Francisco Examiner 1959 um, that says, in a small shop on a dusty street in Manila, just down from a service station and across from the local dispensary, some of the loveliest clothes in the world are made. I'd love if you could give us some insight into how the shop was run and what made this business so successful, because it's pretty incredible how these sisters and their friend Consuelo work together to make this enterprise.
2: No, it is incredible. It's something it's something you couldn't really plan. I think, honestly, from what I saw certainly all my life and the stories I heard, they just worked really hard. And they opened their shop, their original shop, and then not even a year later, they had to move to larger premises because of the demand. And I saw that shop that she had for a long time when I was a child. It was on one of the sort of grander boulevards downtown, uh, which of course today doesn't look anything like it did before, because in, 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 in their day, what we consider downtown was where everything happened. The sort of center of the city now where I live in her time was not so populated, if that makes sense to you. So, so where, where her shop was was on one of the grand boulevards of Manila and she had a huge display window. Well, okay, a large display window, let's not get carried away, where they would make these you know, incredible confections and put, the, put them on a mannequin in the window and people would come knocking and order the dresses. And I think from all her stories, it was really, it was obviously vision, as you know, which designers have, but really hard work. And all their lives, till the very end, I, I always tell people, even here, They had an atelier full of staff, you know, and in those days, they they were sewers, beaders. There's a Tagalog word, but it's somebody who just does hems. People that just iron things, you know, all kinds of stuff. But they never had a pattern maker. It was the three of them that cut all the dresses.
0: Wow, that's incredible.
2: It's why they look the way they look.
0: And something that also influenced how the shop was kind of set up in this atelier was that your mother spent, I think, over a year and a half studying Parisian haute couture in Paris, studying not only the garments but the industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about that um, and how that influenced how she set up her own shop? I also know that she studied at the Trapagan School of Fashion, which I wrote my master's thesis on, so I was Super excited to see that because they did. They had students from all over the world coming to New York to study fashion design. Can you talk a little bit about how that informed how she ran her shop?
2: Well, the way it happened was, as you as you mentioned, she opened her shop in 1947. And by 1950, uh, it, was, it was certainly successful because she then, in 1951, took off on a, on a long trip to Europe and to the United States with her own money that she had earned, much to the horror of my conservative Chinese (laughs) grandfather, because single women did not travel, you know, unescorted, but she traveled with two female companions and through connections. And, you know, again, back in the genteel days, I remember she said they were introduced, for example, to the president of American Express in France, who then got them entry invitations to the couture shows she 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 saw dozens of them, you know. Her favorites: Dior, Balenciaga, you know, Jean Dessès, Jacques Fath. You know, all those people from that era. And so she was able to look at the clothes up close. Wonderful. Um, so you can imagine the influence that had on her. Traffic in school. I I don't know how long she was in the U.S. I it I'm I'm guessing it was just courses. You know, it wasn't anything long term, but. I just remember the story, she kept cabling back to the Philippines, cabling being what one did in those days before texting. <laughs> um, she just kept cabling back saying, send me more money. Because I guess they had done so well. So in other words, my grandfather couldn't stop her. But she was pretty much the black sheep in the family. She did what she wanted. She was headstrong. And, and my grandfather was very soft-spoken, never lost his temper. She, on the other hand, had that very artistic, very dramatic temper. So I don't think he could con- he could control her much in the end.
0: And then she took all this knowledge and she came back to her shop, which did made-to-order garments, like haute couture quality, made-to-order garments. Your mother was, of course, the head designer of the atelier. And then her sister provided the technical element and and the business skills. And then they had this family friend, Consuelo, who managed the measurement taking and the rigorous fittings. And they, of course, did multiple fittings with their clients. And it, it was really just this kind of Bustling, popular destination in 1950s Manila, very much like the haute couture ateliers in Paris. It was so cool. Um, I think one thing I read was that clients were required to come dressed with exactly the lingerie, heels, jewelries, and all the answers to your mother's questions because she really cared about where they were going to be wearing this garment and um, how they had to be able to move in it. Which I thought was was you know so much attention to detail. And as mentioned, the launch of the business coincided with the beginning of the golden age of haute couture in Paris. This is paralleled by a golden age of haute couture in the Philippines, obviously spearheaded by your mother and this incredible business. I mean, she's producing these luxurious, highly sought after masterpieces of artistry and precision And the biographical essay in the book reads, quote, Slim fused the rigorous refinements of French couture with her own highly original formal wear without losing sight of her roots. She used her complex fashion vocabulary to articulate a body of work that cuts across imagination and reality, the foreign and the Filipino, rising above these worlds into perhaps the most sophisticated, arguably most distinctive chapter of Philippine couture, end quote. Can you speak to some of the defining elements of your mother's work during this and later periods? I mean, what made a dress distinctively slip?
2: Well, I think one thing I'd like to explain before that, Cassidy, is the context. Because a lot of people wouldn't realize that after World War II, in Southeast Asia, Manila was pretty much it. It was the most progressive, it had a lot of promise, because you can imagine the rest of the well, the neighbors. I mean, Japan was devastated. Singapore was still not what what the Singapore we know today. Hong Kong wasn't the Hong Kong we know today. So it was really Manila. Also, because it was such so Western in its culture. I always used to say we went from 300 years of being a colony of Spain to to the arrival of the Americans. We we became Hollywood. <laughs> so that orientation and that context was important. So you realize the framework with which these dresses functioned that there was a demand and a, and and a desire for for these beautiful clothes because there were all these lavish events where 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 these dresses would be worn you know they didn't just they didn't just exist in a bubble as press releases they were actually worn by people to these fantastic soirees and parties and events Really, if you think about it, the golden age of of, of couture, as you were saying, if, if you look at it was also the most, really the most innovative chapter in fashion history because before that, a lot of fashion was more or less tradition. You know, the, the sort of fashion icons in the West were, were the royal courts, you know, and then you have the, the likes of Charles Worth. It was really only from the twenties to the fifties that fashion really started becoming modern. And then, uh, as we said, after World War II, there was that return to romanticism. Also, there was a taste, for lack of a better phrase, a taste for the avant-garde, you know, with these, with these challenging silhouettes and these asymmetrical shapes. And I think this is the the vocabulary that my mother was the most inspired by. And, you know, a lot of the way she worked was on the human form you know, uh, sculpting the dress. A lot of times she would actually, they would cut the dress on the client. Wow. Which is why they were required to wear the corsets and whatever undergarments they were planning to wear with the gown so that the fit was very, very particular. You know, she had a flair for theatrics because if you look at the silhouettes of her work, particularly in this golden age, in art school, you would call them gestures. You know, there's sort of gestures of movement frozen in time with uh, underpinnings and scaffolding. It's almost like a dress caught in suspended animation.
0: Yeah, that's an incredible way to describe it because I think in the book, it's like these these are sculptures that defy gravity. I mean, they're incredible, incredible shapes. And using the body as kind of, you know, a canvas to sculpt, as you said, even directly on the human form. These just incredible, like, shapes of, of different, um, the dress I'm looking at right now is from 1967. And it can only be described as, as a bustle on the back of this woman with this kind of cascading train. It's It's so incredible and really so inventive and fun. And your mother's been described as an avant-garde couturier, as radical in her design aesthetic, with garments that defied gravities, lines that are also draped to the body. And then there's also this emphasis on surface. In the book, it says, magic garden of surfaces, not only on fabric, but also of it. And I really love that that description of your mother's designs, because there is something quite wonderful and magical about them.
2: Well, as I said, it was... Like a real artist, it was always all about the work. So she was always lost in her own thoughts, imagining textures or surfaces. She would sit, even when we were kids growing up, she would sit there with piles of fabric on her lap, just staring at them and touching them and playing with them to to, to sort of uh, study their their properties. It was really, I mean, she she loved what she did, and you can see it. She worked. And and all of them actually, even Consuelo, my my adopted aunt that you mentioned earlier, they all worked, literally till the very end because they loved what they did, and I think there's something to be said that the fortune of people who are lucky enough to to love what they do, as a, and and do it for a living, that joy shows in the work, it comes across.
0: And it's reflected in in this incredible career that she has spanning decades and all of her wonderful clientele that I'm going to ask you about in um, my next question. But first, I want to take some time to focus on the terno, because this is a garment entirely distinctive to the Philippines and one with an incredibly rich and and wonderful history. You are, of course, as you mentioned, perfectly situated to discuss this history. You're the co-author of the wonderful book, Fashionable Filipinas, An Evolution of the Philippine National Dress and Photographs, 1860 to 1960s. And if that sounds familiar, Dress listeners, it's because Mark's co-author, Gino Gonzalez, came on very first season of Dress to talk about the book. But for those listeners who might need a bit of a refresher, Mark, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the dress style known as the Tras de Mestiza and how this evolved into the Terno and how your mother made her mark on this iconic garment in the 1950s and
2: 60s. Okay, where to start? I'll <laughs> to give you the short version of the story. Basically what happened was before the arrival of Spain in the 1500s, the Philippines was an archipelago of thousands of islands with different uh, tribes and sultanates and, and kingdoms really that were generally around the region of Southeast Asia. The, the superpowers at the time were China and India. So there was a lot of Hindu and uh, Islamic influence, et cetera, exotic clothing and all that. There's a little, it refers to that in our Terno book, actually. Uh, when, upon the arrival of Spain in the 1500s onward, um, what happened basically is um, when, when the conquistadors arrived in the Philippines, uh, they, were, they were male. And at the time, the route to get to the Philippines took three months and it was very dangerous. So for the first hundred or so years, even though the Philippines was already a colony of Spain, uh, they did not bring their women until the Suez Canal was opened, and it shortened the journey to less than a month and it was safer for women to travel. So you can imagine in this period of a hundred or so years, lots of little halflings were born when the Spanish males had native Filipina partners, and they would have these, what they called mestizas, you know, these half Spanish, half Filipino children. By the time our book begins in the mid-1800s, that class of people, what we call the mestizas, had become upper middle class already. And they wanted to differentiate themselves physically from the way the, the native people looked. So they adapted a dress from the Spanish women and made it their own. And it was called the traje de mestiza, which simply means, traje means outfit. So they they adapted the outfit of what the mestiza girls were wearing. So basically the middle-class, half Spanish, half Filipino women adapted the clothing of the the Spanish women, but they used high-end indigenous textiles, which at the time, were made from pineapple fiber and silk. It was a version of silk organdy. So they were very transparent because of also the the climate. And this garment, the Tarja de Mestiza, continued to be worn, but as you can see in our book, by decade, it would evolve echoing again, the latest in Western fashion. And basically what happened was the sleeves, which were bell-shaped, became more and more voluminous. And then by the era of Charles Worth, they rose and became the leg of mutton sleeves. And then that evolved toward uh, the 1910s and 1920s into, by the 1920s you see it became the sleeve that you know today. Also the word terno is very complicated because in that century we wrote about, it came to have several different meanings. The origins of the word, which is a Spanish word meaning a matching ensemble or something that matches, was simply because they wore a blouse, a fichu collar and a skirt that were not matching. And finally, at a certain point over the decades, they started having the fichu and the blouse with matching embroideries. So they started referring to it as terno, meaning I want something with matching embroidery. Then it kind of became what we call today the terno, which really has no reference whatsoever to where the word originated. But also, for the record, in my mom's time, so you're talking about post World War II, a lot of people referred to the terno as the mestiza dress, which then makes it more confusing because it's in Spanish, it's the traje de mestiza, which it's not.
0: But during the 1950s, um, your mother has this very distinguished clientele, kind of the creme de la creme of Filipino society. And they're commissioning these distinctively Filipino garments from your mother. And your mother was also very influential, I think, in developing the local fashion industry. I'd love if you talk a little bit about that and how she really used local products, local textiles, and incorporated those into her designs. And I'd love if you could talk about that.
2: Well, I think you know, she was somebody like any great artist who could be inspired by anything. And I know in the 19, as early as the 1930s, onward toward after the war, there was always a push from local government organizations to try and promote the use of native materials to kind of help out. And, and also around that time, there, 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 there was fabric being produced here, you know, so, so there was a push to use native fabrics as well but also we have to make the distinction between locally produced fabrics and indigenous textiles because indigenous tend to be the more tribal, sort of hand-woven, rather unstable type fabrics. And then you have the finer things, such as the fabrics I mentioned to you before, which we still have today, actually. Pina being one of them is hand-woven from pineapple fibers and it really is one of the most exquisite fabrics still. And then there's also what, what was called husi, which is uh, really a silk organdy with fibers from China.
0: And she incorporated those into her designs for her incredible clients. And I think she also imported like the finest, like French silks and and all of these things. So it's really just this beautiful, when you look at her designs from this period, you have kind of these more, you know, fashionable Euro-American silhouettes, but then you also have these incredibly exquisite ternos. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about who was wearing her clothing.
2: Well, I'll tell you something though, in that period you're talking about when, when her, her atelier was open, the currency exchange, I remember my dad telling me, was two pesos to one U.S. dollar. Now it's 48 pesos to one U.S. dollar, to give you an idea. And it was was very easy to order materials from overseas. So as you say, she was ordering beads and sequins from Paris, fabrics from France and Italy, and they were ordering linens from Switzerland and all kinds of things like that. But also, yes, she was using the Locally, the handwoven fabrics here, and also, I remember in our research, there was an article about brides in the nineteen late forties, fifties onward, and there was a survey taken on uh, did the brides prefer a western wedding gown or a terno? and more than more than half preferred ternos, which is why if you look at the bridal section in my mom's book, there's a lot of wedding ternos. Oh, and they're
0: they're the most exquisite creations you can imagine. And just the surface detail and the one I'm looking at is just incredibly embroidered. It's kind of fanned out in the front um, and it's just kind of this, this canvas for this wonderful embroidery. I'd love if you could talk about the gown by your mother for the nuptials of first daughter Linda Garcia and Fernando C. Campos, because this gown, I mean, let's just talk about the 18 yards of train that accompany it, <laughs> if that gives our listeners any idea of how ex- extravagant and extraordinary this gown is.
2: Well, it's its exactly, you're referring to the period that, that we just talked about where she ordered all these incredible materials from Europe. And this was the equivalent of Princess Diana's wedding here in, in the Philippines at the time, because she was the first, uh, the daughter of the fr- president and the first lady. And it was one of the few wedding receptions in the presidential palace. So it was a really big deal. So my mother made the train to take up half the length of the aisle of that church. And that dress, if you see it, oh my God, the amount of labor. Every single floral applique you see was uh, embroidered, you know, made by hand. And that entire floral motif is sewn by hand onto pleated silk organdy. Can you imagine how long it took?
0: I can't imagine. It says there were six page boys to carry it because it was that long and and, he- and I I'm assuming it was kind of heavy too.
2: Yes, it was.
0: <laughs> and then it comes with this really fascinating story because the dress just disappeared for three decades and then resurfaced, which I find fascinating.
2: Let me just add one thing for historical purposes. That photo you're looking at of the dress, we actually had to crop the train just to fit into the book. So it was longer than that.
0: And I'll try, hopefully be able to post a picture of this on our Instagram to just show our listeners what we're talking about, because it's pretty amazing.
2: And cleverly, the train, even though it was heavy, was not attached to the waist. It was attached from the shoulders like a cape. Underneath the fichu or pañuelo, as we call it.
0: Wow, wow, absolutely incredible. And did your mother do the bridesmaids' dresses and all of the, Every, the wedding party? Wow, had. wow, wow. And
2: that first lady and her daughter, Linda, who, who was the bride, were very good clients of my mom. And actually, Linda's son, Carlos, is a good friend of mine. And thanks to him, he kept a lot of his mother's and grandmother's clothes. And, and a lot of it we restored for the book.
0: Absolutely wonderful. I want to talk about the 1960s because this is a pivotal turning point in your mother's life. She, of course, married your father, Hubert Lewis Higgins, in 1959. And in 1960, she founded Slim's Fashion and Art School. I'd love if you could tell us about this next chapter in your mother's life and career which is no doubt influenced by the birth of yourself and your sister, and then, of course, the swinging 60s.
2: Well, I'll start by telling you a story my sister always liked to say. is When we were growing up, my mother made this, well, when we were born and growing up, my mother made this announcement that she would sort of retreat from her work a bit to take care of and raise her family. And, of course, when we were growing up and being naughty, or as, as we became teenagers and always wanted to go out, you know, we got the whole guilty mom, guilt, guilt trip from your mother thing where I sacrificed my career to look after you and raise you and now all you guys want to do is go out and <laughs> not be around me. And my sister said, you know what, that was completely a lie because if you look at her, the chronology of what she did, she never stopped working when we were born. In 1960, when she opened the school, she was pregnant with my sister. So she did not retreat from work. <laughs> as she's, she cleaned, or at least to us.
0: And you have designs of hers from the 60s. Exactly. Uh, which are exactly what you would want a 1960s haute couture garment to be. I mean, there's this fabulous mini skirt <laughs> dress in the book that is, I, I don't know. it looks
2: like it's out of Barbarella.
0: Yes, it looks exactly like it's out of Barbarella. It's fabulous with all these cutouts and these metallic edging, uh, pretty wonderful. And then that's paired next to this wonderful fringed number um so your mother was obviously responding to the times and <laughs> incorporating them into her work
2: and you know what I'll tell you something she was as an as a as a creative person and as an artist which I did learn thankfully from her she was totally fearless she was she was never she was never afraid to experiment and she was also somebody who was quite timeless in the sense, she was never boxed in by her her generation she was very open-minded in fact i was i was thinking last night i would tell you the story in the 1980s is when i graduated high school and went to college and in the beginning i did fine art but then eventually decided to take up fashion in new york and so we traveled there every, every summer anyway, but as I grew up, and certainly when I was in college, we were there all the time. And just at the time that I was studying fashion was when the whole explosion of deconstructed fashion happened, where you had the Japanese and the Belgians, you know, the big, you know, Comme des Garcons and Yoji Yamamoto. You, you had people like Ande Meister and everybody. And I remember my mom, who loved shopping by the way, loved looking at all the latest fashion, seeing what everybody was doing. And for somebody in, you know, she would have already been in her 60s. She was looking at these rags of Comme des Garcons and Yoji, and she completely understood what they had done. And she would explain to me, you see how clever this is. What they've done is they've turned this inside out. They exaggerated that. In other words, they were not alien to her. They She, she didn't get lost looking at them. In fact, adapted a lot of that deconstructed look to her own clothes because she's somebody who never shopped for clothing itself. She made all her own clothes. So you can imagine, she was obsessed over makeup and accessories. But she liked looking at what all the other designers were doing, what young people were up to, what young... She always loved to see what my friends were wearing when we when we went out clubbing. Because in my time, when you went out, you got dressed up. So she would always call my friends over and say, come here, can I see what you're wearing? Of course, some of them were in punk clothes, you know, with all the spikes. (laughs) Turn around, can I see? You know, it was never alien to her, none of this, which is interesting for somebody that age.
0: Yeah. And you've now taken us into the 80s. So we've gone from the 40s to the 50s, 60s, 70s, and your mother is still designing in the 1980s. Um, the book talks about how she kind of marked her official return, although you're telling me she never really left. But she she marked her official return to uh, fashion design in 1977 with Slim's Haute Couture Collection uh, debuted at the Intercontinental Hotel. And then I believe that was followed in in seventy eight or seventy nine by another haute couture collection. Can you tell us a little bit more about what characterized her designs in the seventies and eighties? I know she also started dabbling in ready to wear during these periods.
2: Yeah, well, there is a very simple answer to, to that. Again, the Philippines always looked to the West, particularly to Europe, and but but by then also in the seventies it was New York as a for fashion you know fashion ideas and. The late 1960s, fashion generally, historically, had sort of rebelled against glamour and style and sort of went into this whole escapist world of, you know, Mary Quant and Biba and, you know, as you were saying, the swinging 60s. And that whole concept of glamour and elegance had faded. And it was Yves Saint Laurent who was pivotal in bringing that whole uh, sense of luxe back into clothing when he opened Yves Saint Laurent Rive Gauche, where it was all about beautiful fabrics and beautiful cuts and tailoring, but primarily about the fabrics. It was all the 70s was all about the print and all these beautiful gossamer silk crepes and charmeuse and things like that. It wasn't any more so much about avant-garde silhouettes or cutting-edge shapes or anything. It was the, it was fabrics and fluidity. So you had the likes of Yves Saint Laurent and Kenzo, people like that. So Again, when she launched her alleged comeback show, it was all about those fluid silhouettes and and you know, and it was interesting because at the peak of her career, or at least for me, the most creative peak in the in the 50s, it was really all about, as you were saying, construction, you know, scaffolding and and sort of putting dresses in a state of suspended animation with all these very elaborate undergarments and you know, some of the gowns even had elastic to hold the legs in place and to keep the skirt at a certain angle. Whereas then you look at the late 70s, the construction was totally different where the idea was almost to wear as little as possible. So she would have these really slinky dresses with either no lining or barely any lining or the linings would be made of very fine jersey. And the seams were were of these really fine, Silks were hand rolled and finished by hand. So it was the complete opposite of the 50s. They were not constricting. They were actually very fluid, very revealing with silk chiffon capes and things like that.
0: I love how seamlessly she just kind of moves into these different phases in fashion design too, because there's a lot of designers who really pushed back against that. But no, your mother was always forward looking and, and ready to, you know, kind of move along with the times and place her own
2: mark on it. I think that's a sign of a timeless mind.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That and and you know she like like any great designer would understand that fashion in the end is a cycle, and I think she reached the whole cycle of it if you really think about it. From you know you had the nineteen thirties and forties which were rather austere, especially the the, the mid forties onward were the war years. Then to this complete fantasy of you know, the extravagance of the 1950s, as you say, the Dior silhou- and Balenciaga silhouettes, and then the sort of slinkiness of the 70s and eight and then the 80s where you have, uh, when fashion pretty much hits the glass ceiling, where I always say once you, what, you hit a glass ceiling when you start deconstructing something and reinventing it, in, 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 trying to reinvent it in a new way, I think that's pretty much the end of the line. And then fashion kind of goes back. And if, you look at anything in, in in art, in literature, it's the same thing. Once you have the likes of people like James Joyce writing a book like Ulysses, you know that the English language has already been expressed in every way possible, and it's now time to reinvent a new way of saying something. That was the intent of deconstructing clothing as well, which kind of stuck because you still have the likes of Comte de Garcon still around. <laughs> exactly. You have Margiela. And she, if she were alive today, would have just completely, seamlessly moved with the times. I think. I think it's really a profound understanding of, of fashion and it and all of its aesthetics, really.
0: And it's all reflected in this incredible book and your mother's incredible career trajectory. And I mean, she really was undeniably a trailblazer. She was instrumental in establishing the now-thriving fashion industry in the Philippines. And in 1987, she was presented with the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Filipino Designers Group for her 40 years of contributions. And in 1990, the year that she passed away, she was awarded posthumously with the Hall of Fame Award at the Manila Fashion Design Awards, where her last collection was also presented. And 2009 was, of course, the year that yourself and your sister both published a book and debuted a museum retrospective about her remarkable life and career. And I'd love if you could share a little bit of your experience working with this archive that comprises your mother's legacy. And there's so many wonderful photographs, stories, and garments that were featured in this book. Um, what was it like to work with them and, and start constructing this kind of chronological look into your mother's? life?
2: Well, um, I have to tell you, it was an incredible learning experience and a journey because I was very close to my mother and, and actually, you know, did study fashion design at some point in college. So we spoke the same language. And, you know, you grow, up, you grow up with a parent and you think you know them. But when I was, you know, by the time we worked on the book, she was long gone. And just when I thought I knew everything she did, gosh, you know, what happened was we, we did press releases saying that we were working on this book and and in every press release that came out in the, the newspapers at the time, it said, if you have any photographs or dresses from Slim that you would like to share, please contact us. My gosh, the <laughs> amount of clothes and people that contacted me and the the surprises of some of the clothes that I, I thought I kind of thought I'd seen everything she'd done, but no, I mean, I would open boxes of these things and think, wow, I, I, I wouldn't imagine she would have done a silhouette like this and then there it was. The process of creating this book for me was three years because it took me two years to painstakingly collect and restore these clothes. Some of them were in pretty bad condition, because also we have tropical climate here, it's not very friendly to textile. But I had two seamstresses from my mother's original atelier who came and helped me restore the clothes. I mean, we literally had to take some of the gowns apart into pieces, clean them separately, and then put them back together.
0: Wow. Labour of
2: love, I suppose you would call it. But (laughs) I figure at least... Uh, Mission accomplished if people like you from halfway across the world are looking at this work and, and enjoying it.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember Gino came on the show and I read the fashionable Filipina book and was just blown away by that incredible history. And then your mother's name kept coming up. And then to learn that, you know, you had done this wonderful retrospective and this wonderful book about her work, and then to track you down and connect with you uh, halfway across the world, it's really just incredible. Um, Your mother's life and legacy. um, I mean, what a wonderful life.
2: The amazing thing is up to this very day, her work still inspires young people like yourself. And, you know, a lot of the fashion design industry and community in this country and aspiring fashionistas here still can look at her work and be, and find it relevant. Because if, as you were saying, a lot of the gowns you can still wear now about the book, when I was talking to my sister about it, suddenly there was a lot of pressure, by the way, because you're telling the story of, first of all, your own mother, who's not around to defend herself. And and I was telling the team that worked on the book, it cannot be about any of us. The book has to be, tell the story of the the spirit of of an artist and reflect, you know, sort of give somebody a sense of who this person was and what they were all about without anyone else's personality sort of getting in the way. And also, uh, I discussed with my sister the idea that if you notice, the book is not curated chronologically. It's done by archetypes, because I wanted to also show the timelessness of her work. So you'll have a, you know, for example, a dress from 1960 right next to a dress from the 80s with very similar silhouettes. And you'll also notice we didn't put a lot of of uh, the year when the dress was made, unless it was the the photograph of a specific person wearing the dress again, to show you the timelessness and the cycle of fashion.
0: Yeah, and all these themes that exist throughout her work over all these, this incredible decades-long career. And I mean, I just have to say, and I know I've said it, um, and I'll continue saving it, is that your mother really deserves her place in the pantheon of great fashion designers of the 20th century. For those of our listeners who weren't aware of her, they are now. And I know that they'll continue to spread the word Um, because once dress listeners, once you see her work, your mind is going to be blown. I mean, what an incredible body of work and what an incredible life to have lived. And I thank you so much for sharing uh, it with us today And as mentioned previously, you actually carry on your mother's legacy through your work at Slim's Fashion and Art School, which is a thriving fashion school in the Philippines. to this very day, since it was created in 1960, it's educated over 30,000 future fashion professionals, which is just astounding. And you write that the school is actually your mother's ultimate legacy. How so?
2: Well, I think... To the the def- definition of a legacy something that you leave behind, and if 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 among those those treasures that you've left behind is something that continues to empower, inspire, and educate generations of people, isn't that an ultimate legacy? I guess because that school, I would say about sixty or seventy percent of the entire uh, body of designers in Philippine fashion history came from that school. Wow. And I think also it is a vocational school. So you can literally walk in there. It's not a degree program. You don't have to take all the courses. You can take whatever you want. But when you walk out of there, you're perfectly capable of setting up your own business and creating your own stuff. It's very, you know, that, that saying knowledge is power. And and Filipinos, I have to say, as a race, place an extremely high value on education it is the one thing that they will save their money for is to educate themselves in pursuit of a better life. And even on, on our 10 years of, of running the school, we have seen this. And that, that in itself is what inspires us to keep going because it's, it's not only made famous designers' names, but it's empowered a lot of you know the, the nameless people that have taken the courses, gone back to their little town or their province And and are able to create a business to, to sustain themselves and their families.
0: And now with the pandemic, you've actually taken a lot of your course material online. Can you talk to us about that a little bit?
2: Well, moving online was something we always talked about over the years, but never got around to. And of course, the pandemic forced us to move forward because the schools were shut down. And I made a decision said, okay, we're not reopening the school for the foreseeable future. We're going to roll up our sleeves and completely deconstruct and reconstruct the curriculum for online learning. So we've taken a year to do this and we're about to launch our first course next month and then the the rest of the courses will follow. It was an incredible challenge, I have to say, but hopefully we've hurdled all the the problems and, and I think we're good to go. And the good news is it's a wider reach of people that you and I were talking about earlier where, where you're no longer restricted by borders because also a great deal of people over the years have been writing to the school saying that their dream is to come from their provinces and study you know, here in Manila in the school. But it, it's, it's a financial challenge for many people in this country. Whereas now, as long as you have good internet service, you're good.
0: Well, that's absolutely wonderful. And we'll, of course, post in our show notes where people can find and learn more about your wonderful school. And I can't really let you go, Mark, without talking about your art, because you yourself are a man of many hats. You're a historian, an educator, and an artist. And I'd love if you could tell us about your most recent exhibition, which I Apparently, it was a collaboration between Gino Gonzalez and yourself, which I now found out. Um, the exhibition's entitled Gold in Our Veins. It's a wonderfully immersive and transformative experience that juxtaposes your art with historical artifacts from the Ayala Museum um, that inspired it. And this includes gold, porcelain, spices, and
2: textiles. The latest series of paintings I worked on were inspired by the ancient history of Southeast Asia, and which obviously includes the Philippines. And one little known fact about the Philippines was it before, uh, I, as I said earlier, before the arrival of Spain, there were many different influences, including Chinese, Hindu, and Islamic cultures. And the Philippines had a lot of gold. And it, if you look at the artifacts in the exhibit or, or, or the artifacts in the museum, they're, they're the most incredibly elaborate, they're Hindu, Uh, a lot of them jewelry, exquisitely handmade. And there's one, they call it a halter. It's worn diagonally. That's 888 grams of pure gold made by hand. Wow. And it's a little known fact about the Philippines. And the whole inspiration for my work was about ancestry and DNA. And my message is based on the premise that despite the fact that you know, we're not defined by uh, countries or nations, we're defined by what's in our DNA. The, The exhibit was a celebration of ancestry. It's showing what's deeply rooted inside the Filipino DNA and it's an amalgamation of many things because there's also this misconception of purity and nationalism, you know, this search for something that is pure, which can often lead to racism as we've seen lately. Um, without realizing that there's really no such thing and that, that humans are comprised of so many different influences. And this is what I tried to show. Also, uh, one thing that made the Western world very wealthy was the spice trade. So you would have explorers like Marco Polo, being one of the most famous, coming to the East to look for goods to trade uh, back back home. And spices was one of them. And if you read up on your history of the spice trade. I mean, black pepper, uh, star anise, cinnamon and nutmeg were things that the Westerners discovered around the Philippines and Java, around Southeast Asia and, and South India and brought back to Europe mainly and made Europe very wealthy. So it was telling these stories which are all sort of inspired and you can see them in my paintings. So So Gino had the crazy idea of creating this warehouse of an imagined wealthy Chinese merchant somewhere in in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, filled with merchandise that reflect these stories. And then, so you had sacks and sacks of spices. You know, we had all kinds of Chinese and Indian and Oriental furniture and porcelain, plus... The museum, much to my surprise, allowed me to select objects from their treasured glass display cases and put them among the paintings. And then we also put texts from people like Marco Polo, Antonio Pigafetta, who was a chronicler who wrote about his first uh, encounters of of the Philippines. And, And he actually wrote about a king in a part of the Philippines called Butuan, who he describes as being very handsome with you know, long black hair wearing lots and lots of gold and perfume and silk brocades. So this is an image also that a lot of everyday people in the Philippines don't realize this is where we came from because there's also this short-term memory where we think, you know, the Americans liberated us and we came from Hollywood, which isn't the case, you know.
0: Can you also talk a little bit about the textiles and the garments that are featured in the exhibition?
2: Well, the textiles uh, were two parts. the uh, the museum textiles were actually very precious and rare indigenous textiles from the collection of one of the patrons and owners of the museum. And you know I used a lot of also my own personal textiles as props because very much like my mother, I collect fabrics when I travel. And also I render them a lot in the paintings because you, you have these beautiful ikat weaves, which you can find in many different cultures of the world from, from, from Central Asia to Southeast Asia to India. And then you have these beautiful Chinese and Indian silk brocades. And then th- those were juxtaposed with handwoven silk fabrics from the Southern Philippines. So again, it was also the, the, the Silk Road, you know, the, the trade of silk coming from the east and going to the west. So there were allusions to all of that in this exhibit, and it was also a sensory experience because when you walked into this this warehouse, there was there was a soundtrack, there was you know Buddhist chanting or a call to prayer, or and then you had a Chinese incense hanging from the ceilings, you had flowers. And then you could smell all the spices. Wonderful. So it was quite an immersive experience.
0: And I felt it as being immersive just by merely watching it on YouTube. So I can't imagine <laughs> what it would have actually been like to have been in there in this sensory experience as well. And our listeners can, of course, check out um, your, I guess you actually are the guide on YouTube. I think they take you through your paintings.
2: Yes, they made me do an audio guide of some of the paintings. And then after the exhibit finished, they put together that film with, and then they used my narration.
0: Yeah, and it's really wonderful. And our listeners can check that out. Mark, thank you so much for being here. This has been such a pleasure.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Mark, thank you so much for joining us today, especially Kaz, since I believe you told me that when you guys were recording this, it was 1 a.m., his time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but he is a bit of a admitted night owl, so it was totally (laughs) fine. (laughs) Um, And this was such a gift for Mark to share with us and our listeners his mother's legacy. You know, learning about some's life really kind of speaks to this Move to expand fashion history beyond its, you know, narrow Euro-American confines. There's this whole other world out there, as history points out to us, that has been populated by incredible individuals and designers like his mother. And she had a very prolific career, and her legacy undoubtedly exists in the 30,000-plus students who have trained and continue to train at her fashion design school in the Philippines.
0: Yeah. And in addition to that, she undeniably has earned her place among the pantheon of designers celebrated for their contributions to the golden age of haute couture and beyond. Her career not only rivaled those designers, but extended well beyond that of people like Dior, Balenciaga, and Chanel. And I am so grateful to Mark for his time and generosity, especially because he gifted me with this incredible book that he wrote with his sister. And his mother's work Listeners, it's as jaw-dropping and awe-inspiring as it sounds as he described it throughout this interview, and I cannot wait to share these images over Instagram this week
1: with everyone. Yes, so please be sure to join us this Thursday when we will re-air our Season one episode with Gino Gonzalez. Going way back. <laughs> yeah. We're digging into the archive, friends. But we're going to re air the season one episode with Gino Gonzalez on the book that he co authored with Mark, Fashionable Filipinas. And this is going to provide a little bit of a broader, more broad contextual history. So, to, to contextualize Slim's work specifically, it's going to look at the history of the distinct fashion styles and fashion systems within the Philippines that does it for us today dress listeners may you ponder the enduring legacy of slim next time you get dressed Remember, we love hearing from you,
0: so please email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. And you can, of course, follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And if you have a moment, I want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform. We always appreciate your support.
1: Also, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Frye, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For our podcast from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.